Okay, and that's going to do it for the local edition tonight. We will be back tomorrow night for more right here on Radio Catskill. So tune in then at 6.30. Stay tuned. Coming up in just one moment, it's Let's Talk Vets with your own Doug Sandberg. From river to river, mountain to mountain, this is Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Radio Catskill. Well, good evening, and welcome once again to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This is where we discuss vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hope that listeners will better understand our veterans, our veterans will know they're not alone, and perhaps along the way we'll learn a little something about each other. We sincerely hope to accomplish that mission, and the opinions expressed on this program are mine alone as a veteran. Tonight will be a truly revolutionary broadcast. We'll chat with Patrick O'Donnell, author of a new book, The Indispensables. It's an amazing story of the 14th Continental Regiment, a group of citizens, business owners, and patriots, mainly from Marblehead and Beverly, Massachusetts, who, as you will learn, did a great deal to turn the tide of the American Revolution on more than one occasion. Keeping with that theme, we'll re-air an audio essay on George Washington from our friend, Vince Benedetto. But before we get into the heavy lifting, here are your dates of note for December. December 1st is the Civil Air Patrol birthday, of course, The Civil Air Patrol is the USAF Auxiliary. December 7th is Pearl Harbor Day, called A Day Which Will Live in Infamy by Franklin D. Roosevelt on December 7, 1941, after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. December 13th is the National Guard Birthday. December 18th, National Wreaths Across America an annual laying of wreaths of all veteran cemeteries across the nation. The 24th, of course, is Christmas Eve, and the 25th is Christmas Day. Raging virus, mobs, political violence, disarmament, and misinformation all divided Americans. 
Is this a 2021 headline? No, it is in fact a quote from Patrick O'Donnell's new historical account, The Indispensables. The diverse soldier mariners who shaped the country, helped form the Navy, and while they were at it in their spare time, rode Washington across the Delaware and made up the 14th Continental Regiment of George Washington's Continental Army. So let's set the stage with a little historical context, and don't worry, there will not be a test. The Revolutionary War spanned from 1775 to 1783, is also known as the American Revolution, arose from growing tensions between residents of Great Britain's 13 North American colonies and the colonial government, which represented the British crown. Skirmishes between British troops and colonial militiamen in Lexington and Concord in April 1775 kicked off the armed conflict, and by the following summer the rebels were waging full-scale war for their independence. France entered the American Revolution on the side of the colonists in 1778 and turned what had essentially been a civil war into an international conflict. After French assistance helped the Continental Army force the British surrender at Yorktown, Virginia in 1781, the Americans effectively had won their independence, but fighting would continue until 1783. For more than a decade, before the outbreak of the American Revolution in 1775, tensions had been building between the colonists and the British authorities. The French and Indian War, or the Seven Year War, from 1756 to 1763 brought new territories under the power of the crown, but the expensive conflict led to new and unpopular taxes. Attempts by the British government to raise revenue by taxing the colonies, notably the Stamp Act of 1765, the Townshend Acts of 1767, and the Tea Act of 1773 met with heated protest among many colonists who resented their lack of representation in Parliament and demanded the same rights as other British subjects. Colonial resistance led to violence in 1770 when British soldiers opened fire on a mob of colonists, killing five men in what has become known as the Boston Massacre. After December 1773, when a band of Bostonians dressed as Mohawk Indians boarded British ships and dumped 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor during what is known as the Boston Tea Party, an outraged Parliament passed a series of measures known as intolerable or coercive acts designed to reassert imperial authority in Massachusetts. In response, a group of colonial delegates, including George Washington of Virginia, John and Samuel Adams of Massachusetts, Patrick Henry of Virginia, and John Jay of New York, met in Philadelphia in September of 1774 to give voice to their grievances against the British Crown. The First Continental Congress did not go so far as to demand independence from Britain, but it did denounce taxation without representation as well as maintenance of a British army in the colonies without their consent. It issued a Declaration of Rights to every citizen, including life, liberty, property, assembly, and trial by jury. The Continental Congress voted to meet once again in May 1775 to consider further action, 
but by that time, violence had already broken out. Here now is my conversation with author Patrick O'Donnell. A raging virus, mobs, political violence, disarmament, and misinformation all divided Americans. Was that a quote from last week or last summer? It could be, right? But such were the conditions in Marblehead, Massachusetts, in 1769. Sounds too familiar, however, uh, with this quote. Patrick O'Donnell opens up this book. The Indispensables, the diverse soldier mariners who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware. And um, it doesn't say what they did in their spare time, Patrick. They didn't have much spare time. They were trying to save the country. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Talk Vet. Uh, This is a story, uh, an epic story, that was untold until the Indispensables. And these men were in the great inflection points of the American Revolution. Beginning in 1769, where, you know, the reader is put back in time to that on a rolling deck of a ship called the Pit Packet. And it's not a pleasant voyage for these Marblehead sailors. Their, their job is they, they're, uh, they're fishermen. They're also merchants. They're coming back. But the ship is boarded by the Royal Navy, and it's not a, a pleasant call, as I said. They're there to, to impress them, to enslave them into the Royal Navy. And it's a life service and usually ends with death. And nobody gets to go home and see their families or anything else. It's really an unpleasant experience. But this is kind of the tyranny of the time. And these men are about to be pressed into service, but they fight back. The Royal Navy is boarding the ship, and uh, the the officer in charge is about to step forward. But they're hauling salt from Cadiz, Spain. And uh, one of the bags of salt spilled across the deck. And one of our guys in the book literally takes his foot and puts a line in the salt. It says, if you cross the line, you're a dead man. And these men were armed with harpoons, and they were really good at, you know, what they did with those harpoons uh, and hatchets and other things that fishermen have. And the Royal Naval officer was pretty cocky, and he crossed the line. He had a harpoon in his throat within a second, and he died. He bled out. And that's the beginning of this book. And um, what's really extraordinary is America's first super lawyer steps in, John Adams, and he basically gets these men acquitted of murder. But that's the beginning of the story, which shapes what these men were going through. Uh, their their lives were, uh, were subject to the crown's whims, and uh, they were fighting back. And it's a very powerful story. So would it be accurate to say that um, that event that you just recounted kind of symbolizes the frustration level of the columnists and the tipping point they were approaching as a result of government overreach and oppression of the crown? Absolutely. Uh, Their lives were completely being dominated by the crown in many, many ways, through taxes, through impressment. And then as, as time goes on, a series of events take place that these men are all part of. One is the Boston Massacre where British soldiers fire upon unarmed civilians, Americans, and kill them in cold blood. Interestingly enough, John Adams is also there to to, uh, actually acquit the British soldiers this time that did that act. But then there's the Boston Tea Party, and there's a lot of nuance to that, which I won't get into. But, uh, you know, these men were in the vortex of that as well. 
And they all they do is destroy property in in terms of the T. They don't destroy the ships. They don't. They actually very carefully put locks back on uh, where they took the T out. They wanted to make a statement, but you know, unfortunately, that statement is met with complete and overwhelming force by the crown. They decide to shut down Boston Harbor and throw everybody out of work, and they later go on and, and basically shut down the fisheries in that these men, uh, the Marbleheaders, derive their living at the Grand Banks. So people are thrown out of work. And then it gets even worse. The crown knows that a rebellion is brewing and they decide to to seize all the gunpowder supplies and cut off gunpowder. So anybody that's out there knows that they're going to be disarmed, basically, and defenseless. And it's the Marbleheaders that are bringing in the majority of the they're smuggling in through their contacts in Spain uh, in 1774. And they're involved in all of the early operations uh, with gunpowder. But, you know, and as all of this is unfolding, in 1773 and 74, a virus hits Marblehead. And, uh, you know, it's just making matters worse, right? you got all these political events of upheaval, but then a virus hits. And it just divides everybody even more politically. There's a division between loyalists and patriots. And there's really some extraordinary scenes in this book uh, with mob violence. They burn down the inoculation hospital that the Patriots build in the town. And uh, they, they surround the homes of the, of the main characters in this book. And uh, there's some really compelling scenes. So it seems like uh, this uh, tight band of brothers, as I've heard it referred to, uh, the Marbleheaders were very much a product of living in this port, bustling port, Marblehead, Massachusetts, and living in the diversity. Uh, one of the points you make in your book is that it was not lost on anybody that you could start from the bottom up and become a prominent citizen. And prominent citizens and, and captains of industry and, and fleet owners could just as quickly lose their fortunes based upon the uh, the sea and mother nature and uh, the turns of commerce. These guys were also very adaptable. How important were these qualities and how valuable would their upbringing and their living in this demographic turn out to be to Washington and to winning the war? It's incredibly important to the entire effort. This is about resilience and about individuals that are just hardened by the sea. Uh, they derive their living by the sea. They fish the Grand Banks, and this is about a 1,000 miles away from Marblehead, which is not too far from Boston. So this is where they fish by hand massive codfish, which can be anywhere between 100 pounds to two or 300 pounds in some cases. And they, they you know, haul them on board the ships and then bring them home. But in the midst of all this, these guys have to make split-second decisions, life-and-death decisions, because the sea is so unforgiving. And literally, scores of men die at sea. The ships are capsized or they just, they're lost at sea because of raging storms. But it, it hardens these men. And in the midst of all this, the crews are uh, diverse. It's African-Americans, some Native Americans in there. There's men from Spain, you know, all over the place, really, because uh, it's an international port, if you will. And uh, what's really amazing is the teamwork and the bonds that are forged in this cauldron at sea. But it's also about free enterprise. These men are making a living the hard way, and they're earning it, and they're 
you know, in some cases, uh, my main character, John Glover, starts out as a as a humble shoemaker that, you know, is able to scrape up enough money to buy a bar and a tavern. And then eventually he buys a ship and he buys like six ships. And it, it's, it just goes on from there. And many men are like that. And the town really values this kind of free enterprise, people that are self-made men. We try to get into some of the women, which there's some pretty extraordinary stories of women in this book as well, but they're fewer because unfortunately there's not as many written accounts uh, from women, but there's some extraordinary accounts of women in this book as well. But these are, uh, you know, very determined individuals that are resilient and, you know, on multiple occasions they saved the United States. The first being in August 1776, you know, we talked, we saw how dangerous a withdrawal under fire in, in the face of an enemy army is. If you look at Afghanistan, for instance, this is what they had to deal with, but like on steroids, 10 times harder in the Battle of Brooklyn. The entire American army, or I shouldn't say the bulk of it, was in Brooklyn, and they had just lost a, a disastrous battle, the Battle of Brooklyn. Um, I wrote a book called Washington's Immortals on Marylanders who made an epic stand that bought us an hour more precious in our history than any other. That stand allowed uh, the American forces under George Washington to escape to Brooklyn Heights. And it was there that Washington made the decision to evacuate. And that evacuation rested on the, sh on the shoulders of these men from Marblehead because they were the most experienced seamen in the, in the colonies. And they had to take 10,000, nearly 10,000 men, the wounded, the cannon, the horses, everything across the raging East River, which is over a mile wide at this point. In the dead of night, you know, not far away was this massive British army, which was about to, to strike upon them. And if had they struck uh, while they were evacuating, they would have crushed the army and, uh, and literally probably ended the war right then and there. So everything rested upon the Marbleheaders on uh, August 29th and 30th. And they make an amazing evacuation. It's it's called the American Dunkirk. And um, it would seem it would night. seem they, that uh, divine provocation intervened there, <laughs> unexplicably a, a miracle of sorts, huh? It does. Uh, what what happens is it's a race against time. Uh, they, these men start you know around 10 p.m. the night before, and they have to transport 10,000 men. They literally have to cross the river, in some cases nearly a dozen times. They have to do it in front of the British Army and the Royal Navy is parked only a mile or two down river. Initially, the tides don't work, the, the wind doesn't work, but things change around. And, and what happens next is uh, really a truly a miracle. A fog sets in as dawn comes up and screens the movement of the Marbleheaders as their ships literally ferry the army across from the, the prying eyes of the British. And they're able to transport uh, the army across safely. It's really a truly a miracle. It's one of the greatest evacuations in history. It's an extraordinary event uh, that many Americans don't know about. So they've, they've gotten to Manhattan and then eventually to New Jersey. What happens in the interim between that and Trenton? A lot. It's one defeat really after another for the American army. And that's what I chronicle in the Indispensables. It's some of the darkest days in American history. The political climate is changing. One defeat after another that George Washington is basically supervising is causing the mood of the country to change. And people are uh, are feeling that this whole revolution thing isn't going to work. 
and the tides changed. You know, shortly after the Battle of Brooklyn, the British invaded a place called Kipps Bay, Murray Hill in today's Manhattan. And the army is shattered once again. It's the Marbleheaders and the Indispensables that that are part of the rear guard that allow the army to escape once again. And these men are involved in a series of really epic actions and in battles. For instance, in another place called Throng's Neck, uh, 25 Americans <laughs> under Colonel Edward Hand are expert crack riflemen, and they literally hold off 4,000 British soldiers that are landing at Throng's Neck. Uh, they, they're, they're shooting these guys. They're behind a, uh, an obstruction on a causeway. It's a, a bottleneck of death in many ways, and uh, they're able to bring up reinforcements, including the indispensables, and the British are stopped. It's really one of those rare occasions in in military history where an amphibious land by the Royal Navy is stopped. And a week later, they land again at a place called Pelham Bay. And it's the Marbleheaders that once again save the Army. They fight behind what's now known as the Pelham Bay Golf Course. It's still there, but some of the stone fence still exist. And it was here that uh, John Glover's men hid behind those stone fences and fell back as the British tried to advance and then gored them, basically. And uh, it allowed Washington to once again escape to White Plains. And it's here here again, the the, uh, Marbleheaders play an important role. But it all is sort of kind of building up to this crescendo, which is the darkest period in American history, arguably, is right around Christmas, 1776. You know, all of these defeats are really adding up. The money is running out for the revolution, and so are the enlistments within the army. And uh, Washington's army, which started out at around 20,000 men in New York, is now down to its shell of itself. Several thousand men are there. And Washington has to make a uh, move or offensive that will change somehow the, the course of the revolution. And it's at Trenton that he he puts his move into play and it's it's really one of the greatest battles in American history. Once again a river it plays a role and again the marbleheaders that have to transport the army across that river of the Delaware. So let field. me jump in here a minute Patrick. Yes. When we talk about the marbleheaders now, were they officially a unit or were they just interspersed throughout other units and just happened to be at the right place at the no. right time? No. They were the 14th Continental Regiment. They were almost entirely made up of men from Marblehead, Massachusetts. One company came from nearby Beverly, which is roughly about 60 men. But it was mainly a homogeneous unit made up of Marbleheaders, and that's what made it one of the greatest fighting regiments of all time. Their unity, uh, their strength, and even their diversity in the sense, you know, these made up of African Americans, Native Americans, as, as well as white Americans and, and other sort of interesting groups out there. Rich and poor fought side by side. But this was very much a unit, the 14th Continental, and uh, they were given the job of, of t- taking the the army across the river. But there were other elements of Washington's army that night that were trying to cross the Delaware. And I think it's important that the reader of the Indispensables know, or the listener of the show, knows that every single operation that were, the boats were not crewed by Marbleheaders failed. Huge portions of Washington's army did not cross on Christmas Day because they couldn't. It was impassable. It was only the skills of the Marbleheaders that got that portion of the army across. And the entire operation would have failed 
had it not been for them being there at the right place at the right time. They get them across. They get about 2,500 of Washington's men across above Trenton, and everything is is falling behind schedule. And uh, they're able to make their way towards Trenton uh, not too long after after dawn. And uh, they surprise the Hessian garrison. And it's not what you read in history books where these guys were drunk. These were very highly trained soldiers, these Hessian German allies that the British had. And uh, they were some of the best soldiers in the, the British Army. But Washington is able to attack and it's there's really some epic story scenes but it's the marbleheaders that do something extraordinary again and they seize a bridge at Aston Peak and this is the they cut off the escape route of the uh the Hessians and they set up a series of cannon and it becomes a double envelopment and most of Johann Rawls regiment is surrounded and is either killed or surrenders and it becomes a decisive and crucial victory but just one of really three in the next 10 crucial days of the revolution, the entire course of history changes. And it's the Marbleheaders that are in the uh, the vortex of those battles at Assunpeak Creek again, Princeton. And I think what makes the story really amazing, too, is after all these battles take place, this raging virus that hit Marblehead in 1773 and 1774 is smallpox. And... Um, my main character in this book is a guy that nobody has ever written about, Dr. Nathaniel Bond, and, and uh, it's Dr. Nathaniel Bond that saves our country. Um, his specialty is smallpox. His specialty is inoculation. And at 1777, after the Battle of Princeton, the army was being wiped out by smallpox, and more more people were dying from smallpox than British bullets. And Washington makes the decision to inoculate the army. And uh, that job falls upon Dr. Bond. And Dr. Bond's story is awesome. In, in the Battle of Lexington and Concord, he treated British soldiers because he was following his Hippocratic Oath. And for it, he was labeled a loyalist, even though he was an ardent patriot. And uh, he was canceled, to use the modern parlance. His house was surrounded by an angry mob, and he was threatened with death. And I have a four-page letter that he wrote that uh, I own the original. And he urged Elbridge Gerry, another main character in this book, to to send uh, an armed group of men to to allow him to come to a court-martial to to say what happened. And he does that, and he's exonerated. And, you know, this is the guy that's been canceled. Instead of walking away from the revolution, he becomes a fighting surgeon and a company commander with the Marblehead Regiment and fights through the entire war. And it's on his shoulders after the Battle of Princeton, to inoculate the army, which he does. It's an extraordinary thing and allows them to fight the British without being wiped out by smallpox. But for his service, he dies. Uh, we think by smallpox, and his story uh, had not ever been heard until uh, I wrote The Indispensables. Patrick, let me ask you this. So a lot of people, myself included, we look at that famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware and the and the recount. We say, well, well, that was the end of it. But it wasn't the end of it, right? So when did it, when do we finally get to the point where the British are done? You know, this is what most people don't realize, Doug, is that this is eight years of brutal war between the greatest power in the world at the time as well as fellow Americans, it's a civil war, which is raging. And somehow we miraculously fight through this thing. 
And, you know, I mean, the, the true turning point militarily is the Battle of Yorktown in 1781, but the war doesn't officially end until 1783. And, you know, this is basically eight long years of war, of extreme economic hardship. Marblehead itself is devastated by the Revolutionary War. I, I, I chronicle how, you know, this is the second wealthiest port in Massachusetts. It is now devastated after the war. And I even bring out really some really interesting stories. There's a food riot that the women of Marblehead actually initiate in 1776-1777 because they're starving. And they, uh, they have an armed uprising and they raid the grain stores there. Uh, for food. But the town is devastated. There are, um, I think in one count, they had over 600 children that were fatherless from men that had been lost at sea during the revolution or on land fighting the British. Extreme sacrifice and hardship. Most Americans have no clue the sacrifice and hardship. They take it for granted, which is you know, it's it's seen in elements of um, things like the 1619 Project, et cetera. It's, it's, a, it's a shame. It's a miracle that we won uh, the American Revolution and the fact that it's, you know, it was really about freedom and liberty and, and so many other things that uh, would later change the world. Our revolution would change the world. That's one of the things we always talk about and we always have to talk about soldier suicide, all of the things that, that people don't think about when they think about Veterans Day, I mean, that go beyond mattress sales and barbecues and parades, and then we put veterans back on the shelf for another year and get them out next year and celebrate them again. Well, people don't understand what it means to be of military service and, and the baggage that some of these folks carry. So to that point, I, w- I would like to circle back, I think, is the uh, the correct term these days. And I wanted to ask you about the story of your service as a combat historian in a Marine Rifle Battalion during the Battle of Fallujah. And I, quite honestly, had never heard of a combat historian. What is it? And are these uh, common in military units? They're not. I think my story is probably one of the few examples of it. And I was a volunteer civilian. Um, I was in uniform and, uh, I think I'm the exception. I think probably the only exception of it, of it happening, at least in the Battle of Fallujah, that's for sure. I was with a rifle platoon and uh, with the unit, they had some of the most casualties. All this is told in a book called We Were One, and uh, it's required reading for the enlisted men in the Marine Corps. But it follows the 1st Platoon, uh, Lima Company 3-1, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, which were the spearhead of the um attack on Fallujah, and it chronicles our our experiences. I really follow in that book, Eight Best Friends, in their story. And uh, the book is a relic of the Battle of Fallujah in the sense that all the oral histories were gathered, or most of them were gathered at night after we had fought all day and uh, or at the end of the battle. And uh, they're extremely raw and filled with emotion. And uh, it's a powerful, powerful book. What is your next project? You got anything in mind? I am. Um, I'm working on a Civil War book, and it's uh, almost done. And I'm looking. I, I'll probably have that out in another year or two. Great to talk to you, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us on Let's Talk Vets. Thanks. Patrick O'Donnell. Be safe.
I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg, and you're listening to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill WJFF. So keeping with our revolutionary theme, we see icons of history all the time, artwork depicting legendary figures of our history, statues in public spaces and buildings, or certainly movies and books. But how many of us really study these folks and how they affected our history? Our friend Vince Benedetto, USAF veteran and CEO of Bold Gold Media, shared this audio essay about George Washington. As a graduate of the Air Force Academy and a former Air Force captain and OSI special agent, I'm frequently asked to speak at events honoring our military. However, speaking to teenagers is an altogether different and terrifying experience. During more typical speaking engagements, the audience are there to hear what I have to say specifically. Speaking at a high school, well, they have to be there. One's thoughts immediately go to how to say things differently to them in a way that will connect, keep their attention, and hopefully illuminate something that will contribute to their lives during their most formidable years. In my most recent remarks, I decided to go big, to challenge the very notions, whatever they may be, of why they should even care at all about our veterans. Preceding my remarks, and to set the mood, I asked that a short clip from Ronald Reagan's first inaugural address be played. It's the part where the newly sworn-in president is essentially giving his audience a tour of the Washington Mall. He's pointing out the major monuments representing the giants from our history. Those to Washington, to Jefferson, and to Lincoln. But shortly after, he turns his attention to those, quote, sloping hills just beyond, you know, to Arlington National Cemetery. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bellow Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Porkchop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. Strikingly, during this tender moment of his remarks and in front of the whole world, Reagan's voice cracks as he's fighting back tears during the telling of this remarkable young hero. So upon the completion of this clip, the hundreds of teens in the audience are paying attention. Some even have some tears in their eyes, along with nearly all of the teachers in attendance. 
I ask them some blunt questions that surprise them. I ask, why do we celebrate our military and our veterans? Why do you even care that I am a veteran? And for that matter, why do we honor and celebrate Armed Forces Day and Memorial Day? I, I probe them for some audience participation and a few hands go up. Some of the students answer with, quote, they serve their country. Quote, our military protects our freedom and freedom isn't free. And I'm pleased with these responses as they are all excellent answers to my questions. I then ask another question. I ask, who here has seen an American soldier in uniform? Every hand in the room goes up, every single one. I ask, well, what did you feel when you saw those soldiers in uniform? And I, I kind of prod them to, to shout out some answers, and some, some said pride, patriotism, safety. I proceed with my line of questioning, so I say, who here has seen an American soldier and felt afraid? Not one hand goes up. But I, I prod them a little more. I say, no one? I mean, our soldiers are very powerful people. They are trained to fight. They have guns. No one here has ever felt fear in their hearts upon seeing a uniform American soldier. And still not one hand was raised. And at that moment, I tell them, I said, this, this is why we celebrate Veterans Day. This is why we celebrate our military in America. And I share with them that in much of the world, people do not celebrate their military. They fear it. In much of the world, the military is viewed as a tool of the government to oppress them, not to serve them. I tell them that in order to understand all this, we need to have a short American history lesson. I ask them to imagine the world as it was on July 3rd, 1776. At this time, everyone alive on the planet lived under some form of a dictatorship. Whether it was a king, a queen, a czar, or some other ruler, everyone alive had this common situation to one degree or another. But on July 4th, 1776, it all changed. Suddenly, Americans had declared their independence, and more importantly, Americans had declared that they were free. However, this still did not fully answer the question of why we do not fear our military in America. To understand this, I told them, we would have to turn to a person who is often considered our first American soldier and a real-life superhero, George Washington. So Washington, in 1775, having been appointed as the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, and I reminded them, this is an army that for the most part didn't even exist at that moment, had the enormous task of building and leading a fighting force against the British Empire, the most powerful military force in the world at that time. As I began to share with them the story of General George Washington, on the screen behind me was an image of Washington's command flag during the American Revolution. As an early testament to his brilliant leadership instincts, the flag has 13 equally sized six-pointed white stars against a blue field. Washington well understood the parochial and rivalrous mindset of those who would now need to unite under seemingly impossible odds. In the 18th century, most Americans never traveled outside of their city, let alone their state, I told them. His battle flag did not represent him. It represented them. As a soldier in this new army, under this bold Virginian, as they marched into battle behind him, whether you were from a small state or one of the large states, you knew that one of those stars on his flag represented you and your home. I asked these young kids, I said, 
to further try and imagine something else, to imagine that after the war, having won our independence, George Washington was now one of the most famous people in the world throughout not only Britain, but also the halls of Europe. It was assumed that Washington would now become a king in America. This was just the way it always had been. This is how history and human nature had always played out. The general of the victorious army becomes the new ruler. It was, of course, assumed by King George III, who reportedly believed that the Americans were merely changing, quote, one King George for another. The king, having learned that Washington was to resign his commission and return to his home at Mount Vernon, believed Washington was the greatest man in the world and the greatest character of the age. I then asked the students to travel with me in their minds to another moment and place in time in the final days of the Revolutionary War, to Newburgh, New York, 1783. Major conflict had ceased by this time, and the United States was awaiting a formal peace treaty with Britain. However, the new nation was financially struggling, and the Congress was unable to meet its payment obligations to the Continental Army. This was leading to severe unrest amongst the officers and soldiers. A plan was actually hatched among some high-ranking officers to use the military to take over or threaten the government until their demands were met. Can you imagine? The war was not even formally over, and the new nation was already moving dangerously close to a military coup. However, one indispensable man would stand in their way. George Washington. Learning of the growing plans within his army, Washington called for a meeting of his officers at their headquarters in Newburgh. Washington indicated that he would not himself be in attendance, essentially deferring to the commander below him. General Horatio Gates, therefore, started off the meeting, feeding into the growing frenzy for hostile action against the Congress. But suddenly, General Washington walked into the room and took command of the events in progress. Many of the officers had not seen the general for some time. They noticed that he had aged, and the general then did something profound. He explained to them that this was the moment at the end of the war where their example was most important. Understanding that history was filled with revolutions that ended this way, he let them know the world was watching and waiting for ours to do the same. Washington told them they were men of honor, and this precious moment would require their greatest patriotism and virtue. In essence, this was their ultimate test. He expressed his affection for them, and the pride of serving through such a great struggle alongside them. Washington then assured them he was working on their behalf to resolve their grievances. He pulled a letter from Congress out of his vest. He began to read it to them, but his eyesight was failing him, and he was struggling to see the letter. Perhaps sensing his officers noticed this moment of vulnerability, he paused. He then reached into his pocket and pulled out his eyeglasses. His officers had never before seen him wear glasses. The general then looked solemnly at his military family and said to them, Gentlemen, you must pardon me, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in service to my country. By all accounts, at that very moment, the coup was over. There were tears in the eyes of his officers. They loved their general, and Washington, who himself had sacrificed so much, and who had at all times had placed the principles for which they fought above himself was holding true. And his example at that moment became their example. Once again, Washington had saved the revolution. Later that same year, Washington would do what the whole of the world doubted would ever have been done. 
on December 23, 1783, one of the greatest days in recorded history. General George Washington, the most popular and powerful person in the United States, resigned his commission before the Continental Congress and returned to his home at Mount Vernon. The world was stunned. This had not and does not happen. Until now. Of course, this would not even be the last time Washington would willingly walk away from power. When he later went on to be our first president, the rulers of other nations again assumed he would serve until his death. But once again, Washington defied the forces of history and of human nature, and after his second term he stepped away and retired again to his beloved Mount Vernon. In explaining the uniqueness of our military and our government, compared to much of the rest of the world, I've always been fond of the observations of Alexis de Tocqueville in his prescient Democracy in America. So I shared with the students that in the aftermath of the American Revolution, the rise of America was so profound, it was a marvel to the European powers. How could a nation, not even 60 years old, already be rivaling the long-standing empires of the old world? Well, to get to the bottom of this American miracle, a brilliant Frenchman would feel compelled to travel across the Atlantic Ocean and find out. One such observation of Tocqueville truly cuts to the heart of this whole subject matter. He observed, quote, The European generally submits to a public officer because he represents a superior force, but to an American, he represents a right. Sensing that the students were gaining a new respect for their history and the father of our country, I desired to make some final points about what underlines this sense of trust and love that Americans have for our veterans. I shared with them that every American who joins our armed forces takes an oath. Of course, taking an oath prior to joining a military is not all that special, but the oath we take to join the American military is very, very different. I explained to them that in our oath, our soldiers do something quite peculiar. We swear an oath not to the president or the government and not even to the country itself. We swear an oath to a certain thing. I asked them if they knew what that thing was. To give a clue, I related that this thing was in fact a document, at which point quite a few hands raised up and they answered, the Constitution. I pointed out the historical significance and beauty of swearing to, quote, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Again, we as Americans sense and feel that our military is not to be feared, but loved. For they are a powerful force that represents our rights. As Americans, our sense that government serves the people and not the other way around is commonplace. But I had to tell them, Throughout most of the world and throughout almost all of history, this was not the case. What we have here in America is quite miraculous. And all of this would not be if not for George Washington. It was George Washington who defied the way of things. It was George Washington who enabled the feeling that our military represents the entirety of the nation. It was George Washington who started the tradition of the military being subservient to the people's elected civilian representatives. It was George Washington who had unwavering fidelity to representative government and our eventual constitutional order. It was George Washington who successfully was able to help the American people transfer their love and trust in him into faithfulness to our Constitution and its principles. It was George Washington who said, 
Quote, the Constitution is the guide which I never will abandon. It was George Washington who, more than any other American, was able to get the people to begin to look beyond their parochial visions and to think continentally as a union. It was George Washington who showed us the virtue of the powerful being the servants of the people and not the other way around. Upon Washington's death, John Adams wrote, quote, His example is now complete, and it will teach wisdom and virtue to magistrates, citizens, and men, not only in the present age, but in future generations, as long as our history shall be read. It was always Washington. He was America's rock upon which our nation could be built. He is America's real-life superhero. So why do we honor and celebrate our veterans and our military? I pose this question to them again. We celebrate them because they have fought and stand ready to fight, not just to defend us here and now, the living, but also for all future generations. They defend our important traditions and customs that must go on if individual liberty is to go on. In the words of one of the most brilliant founders, Benjamin Rush, at the conclusion of our War for Independence, he said, the American war is over, but that is far from being the case with the American Revolution. We honor our veterans because they signed on the dotted line to defend with their very lives if necessary the idea that, as Abraham Lincoln said in his Gettysburg Address, government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. And it is true that without America, the world would be a very, very dark place. More accurately stated, since 1776... Without the American soldier, without our veterans, civilization, at least civilization as we know it, would have perished. The light of individual liberty would have long since been extinguished. It has frequently been remarked, I told them, that the words of Thomas Jefferson would mean little without the sword of George Washington. Stated similarly, all of the words of liberty, freedom, and American exceptionalism would not be without the heroes who defended it all. And part of defending it is maintaining what Tocqueville observed as a force that represents a right. And every person who joins the American Armed Forces takes that oath and they become part of the long, unbroken line of military service in America that began with George Washington to today. We can trace it all Back to our real-life superhero, George Washington. Our thanks to Patrick O'Donnell, to Vince Benedetto, and to the U.S. Army Fife and Drum Band, and, of course, to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future programs. Also, send us your upcoming events so we may talk about them on the air. You can drop me an email at vets at wjffradio.org. 
If you or someone you know is experiencing anxiety or need to speak to someone, here's some numbers to jot down. The Veterans Crisis Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Press 1 to talk to someone. You can send a text message to 838255 to connect with a VA responder. Or you can start a confidential online chat session at veterancrisisline.net slash chat. As we approach Christmas and celebrate Hanukkah, I hope you will reflect upon the blessings and freedom we enjoy due in large part to the sacrifices of our fighting men and women. It is as important now as it was in 1769 in Marblehead, Massachusetts, that we recognize our Constitution is under assault. And if we do not fight to protect it, we will surely lose that which we have come to take for granted. So we'll uh, leave you tonight with a revolutionary anthem, originally written by William Billings and is performed by Paul Hillier and His Majesty's Clerks. Chester was a patriotic anthem sung during the American Revolutionary War. Now, Billings wrote the first version of this song for his 1770 songbook, The New England Psalm Singer, and made improvements for the version in his The Singing Master's Assistant, published in 1778. It was the latter version that is best known today. Curious title of the song reflects a common practice in Billings' day in which tunes were often arbitrarily named. The uh, song would rival Yankee Doodle as the unofficial anthem of the rebel colony. And from all of us here at Radio Catskill WJFF, we wish you and your families all the best for the holiday season. Good night.
Unbelievably, just this week, we lost three stalwarts in the folk world. Scott Alaric. Come all you and tender lady. Joe Verga. Let's light a candle for love. And Bill Stinks. I'm headed home to my sweet Wyoming home. Listen to their music on the next Folk Plus. It takes the whole community to keep a public radio station on the air. We hope you'll include Radio Catskill in your year-end giving plans. Your support today leads to a greater tomorrow. Make your year-end gift now to support public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania at WJFFradio.org. Happy Holidays! Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Staying home, you're a revolutionary guide to the Green New Deal. I'm Josh Fox, coming to you from the heart of the Catskills on Radio Catskill. Every week we'll be talking with notable figures from politics, music, art, activism, and social justice, discussing the issues of the environment, the Green New Deal, climate change, fracking, and how we can make the world a better place on my favorite radio station in the world, WJFF. Saturday afternoon at 1. WJFF Jeffersonville. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. From river to river, mountain to mountain, keeping you connected. Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com. Support comes from The Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville, featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th century house. VintageHouseJVille.com and on Instagram at VintageHouseJVille. listening to the retro cocktail hour <laughs> 